That's what we were uh, told all day yesterday, right? Stand up and be counted. That was a great, uh, great day. I, uh, Chris's comment about, uh, uh, you know, it sounding like a locker room talk reminded me of an old story about Newt Rockney when he was the uh, Notre Dame coach. He, d- he delivered one of those stirring halftime talks that he was famous for and pointed toward a door and said, gentlemen, go out and play football. The only problem was he was pointing toward the wrong door. And the whole team ran through the door and into the school swimming pool. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yesterday we got pointed in the right in the right direction. I sense from looking out there that a lot of men got all the preaching they could stand for this month. And uh, I understand that. Ten or eleven hours hearing a number of different men minister to hearts takes takes you need to take some time to assimilate it uh, all. It's a good time. Uh, the these times of gathering are good to stir us up to action, but the emotions don't last. Uh, Jesus said, uh, "The flesh profits nothing; it's the spirit that gives life." Uh, the initial emotions, the desire to move toward God, are are important. They're an essential part of the sanctification process, but we've got to follow through. The will has to be operative. I just encourage you men to get into an accountability group and begin to make use of the truth that you gained uh, yesterday. Uh, I, I want to talk about some things that have been on my heart for a long time. We have, at least for the present, completed our studies in uh, the life of David. We may come back to them next fall. But there are a number of things that I have struggled with over the years, uh, issues that I'm still struggling with to some extent that I wanted to talk about. To some extent, this is a series of sermons on my sins, if you want a, want a theme. Um, trying to elaborate on some of the things that God is teaching me about, about myself. And for my own amazement, writing some papers, which I'll put in the uh, racks in the back. Uh, those will probably turn up a week or two after I preach on them. But they're things that I want to get down on paper for your for your good and for mine, hopefully. Uh, it's things that, that I'm learning from the Spirit of God. And the topic I want to talk about this morning is anger. Uh, when I was uh, quite a bit younger, I was plagued by a a terrible temper. It used to get me into a lot of trouble. I was far too small and skinny to have that kind of uh, temper. And I found that not only uh, did it cause me to inflict physical harm, it caused me to inflict a lot of emotional harm as well. I thought I had that in hand. Until a few years ago, I began to realize that I am basically an angry man. Uh, The almost stereotypical angry man who stuffs his anger and lets it uh, smolder until it erupts in inappropriate ways. And I began doing some hard thinking and reading about how to deal with my own anger. And that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning. In uh, James Bennett, or pardon me, uh, William Bennett's book, the uh, 
Book of Virtues, in the introductory section on self-discipline, he says this, There's much unhappiness and personal distress in the world because of failure to control one's temper. Oh, if only I had stopped myself is an all-too-familiar refrain. And a case in point is the passage that I want us to look at this morning. It's a story of Cain in Genesis 4. If you'll turn there with me, please. I'd like to have you look at this uh, very familiar story, but perhaps look at it in a, a little different way. The uh, significant thing about this chapter is the context in which it's found. It follows chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the story of how sin entered into the world, how the serpent uh, intruded into the garden, injected his uh, venom into the human race. Beginning with chapter 4, we begin to see the ways in which we manifest the fact that we're snake bit, if I can put it that way. And it's, it's significant to me that the first manifestation of the deadly effects of sin in the human race is how it affected a, a, a man's uh, temperament. He became angry, uh, murdered his brother. Monstrous deed, when you think about it. Slaughtered a fourth of mankind. The story is uh, familiar to you, but I'd like to read it again. Verse 1, Genesis 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Uh, Cain's name, Cain, uh, Cain in, in Hebrew, actually means begotten or brought forth. So it's, she's playing on, this, on Cain's name. It's a pun. She named him brought forth because I brought forth a man. Now, the interesting thing about this text is that the phrase, with the help of, is actually one word in Hebrew, a word that's usually untranslated. Grammarians describe it as uh, the sign of the direct object. It's all often used to denote a noun in apposition to another noun, a noun that defines another noun. What she actually said was, I have gotten a man, i.e. Yahweh. That's interesting, that in this early stage of human history, she understood that it would be a God-man who would bring salvation to the world. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit, uh, fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain became very angry. His face was downcast. It's an ancient idiom for being in a funk, uh, getting depressed, pulling a long face is our uh, contemporary idiom. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied to him, am I brother's keeper? Cain's mother 
identified him, closely identified him with the promise of Genesis 3 of the Savior who's to come, the one who had set everything right. Cain, however, was not the answer to the problem of sin. He was just a heavy contributor to it, as was his little brother, Abel. And by the time uh, Abel was born, uh, Eve was uh, disillusioned. I think most mothers uh, think when their child is born that they've begotten a God-man, but uh, truth begins to sink in after a while, and they realize that they're just little chips off the old block, sons of their sinful father, and sons of Adam. And uh, she was a little more realistic about her second son. She named him Abel, which means breath, uh, vapor. As my mother used to say, he, he was breath and britches and not much more. Just a mere man. See. She got the message that these boys were not to be the saviors. In the course of time, we're, we're, told, we're told, Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And the Lord looked with favor, favor on Abel's offering, but he did not look with favor on Cain's offering. And Cain got angry, resentful, bitter, mad at God, angry at his, at his brother. John Milton refers to Cain as that sweaty reaper who offered the hard work of his own hands. Abel, on the other hand, brought a much more suitable sacrifice, a substitutionary lamb, a lamb to take the place uh, of his own sin. The author of Hebrews uh, suggests that the offerings went on for a while. It refers to the gifts that these uh, two boys brought. It also identifies the fact that the real problem was not the form. It was was each uh, person's heart. There's something wrong with the individual, something wrong with Cain. An idea that Genesis picks up, the author of Genesis picks up when he, when he writes, God had no favor, did not look with favor on Cain and his offering. It wasn't the form, you see, it was, it was the heart of, of the man. In the New Testament, John describes Cain as the pawn of the devil. This is the message. He said, you heard from the beginning that you ought to love each other. Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one. That's an interesting insight. And Jude identifies him with angry and rebellious uh, men and women everywhere when he says uh, they have taken the way of Cain. The way of Cain is a is a angry, rebellious way. Find a lot of a lot of men, a lot of women that are angry people. They've taken the way of Cain. And as you know, Cain's anger and resentment grew, gnawed away at him, drew him into into uh, bitter resentment, melancholy, his face fell. Repressed anger always uh, leads to depression. God warned Cain of the consequences of his, of his actions. He said, uh, your anger is like a wild animal that's crouching at the door. It's going to pounce on you. The issue is master it or be mastered. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle place. You will either master your anger, you will either deal with it, or it will deal out death uh, to you. See. But uh, Cain would have none of it. He let his resentment fester, and one day he was out in the field with his uh, brother, and they apparently were talking, which is an interesting statement. And the talk grew more heated. They began to argue. 
And Cain rose up and slew his brother. Uh, Carolyn and I were walking around Albertson Park with our grandchildren, two of our granddaughters, last uh, Friday night, watching a couple of uh, Canadian geese. They're pairing up over there, and a couple of geese were swimming around. Two geese came in. Uh, they were in flight. They came in and landed just about 10 or 15 feet away from the two geese that were right in front of us. And the female tried to get around her gander and get over to see this other gander. He must have been a very handsome fellow. <laughs> and she was paddling like mad and squawking like crazy. And the gander kept getting in front of her and started pecking her. And finally, he started hitting her on the head with his bill. And our... Uh, Littlest granddaughter, Melissa, said, they're having an argument, she said. <clears throat> and sometimes those uh, arguments develop into bitter, bitter fights, and we actually can uh, destroy a human life, as Cain did. Rage can kill. Uh, it's just, it's just a, one of those brutal facts that most murders are not premeditated acts. They're rather... Uh, crimes of passion, as we say, uh, committed in a moment of rage and 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 regretted almost immediately thereafter. But anger can have other uh, deadly consequences. It can turn us into brutal abusers. I, w- I was uh, uh, surprised to read something by uh, uh, Paul Turnier, the man that I always think of as the gentle counselor. In a book called From, From the Violence Within, he admitted, I have on occasion slapped my wife. I might try to reassure myself with the thought that it was only a passing accident, a mental aberration, when I was no longer myself in the heat of the moment, something soon put right. It would be more honest to say to myself that it was I who did it and to see that it reveals an aspect of myself that I find hard to recognize, that I am more angry and violent than I care to acknowledge. I don't know if you identify with that or not, but here's a man who openly acknowledges his, his violence. And even if anger doesn't drive us to physical abuse, our wounding tones and words can crush other spirits. More ways to hurt someone than hurt them with your fist or with the back of your hand or with your open palm. You know, words hurt. We used to chant when we were children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that's not true. That's not true at all. We knew it when we said that. Usually we were whistling in the dark when we said it because someone had had hurt us. Coarse words hurt. David speaks of those whose tongues are sharp swords, uh, suggesting to us the ripping, tearing effect of another's words. When we air out our anger, we always hurt somebody. It's inevitable. One early uh, Christian wrote, As long as anger lives, she continues to be the, the fruitful mother of many unhappy children. And though we're inclined to relish our anger, a, a good spell of wrath feels uh, good to us at the, ti- at, time, at the time. In the end, we always diminish ourselves. We always just feel rotten when our, when our wrath dies away. Frederick Buechner says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is, is the most fun. <laughs> to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, 
to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, he says, is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. We just destroy ourselves. Now let's talk about anger a little bit because I think it's important to understand that not all anger is sin. God gets angry. It can't possibly be sin. The Bible talks a great deal about the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God. Jesus got angry. There was no small uh, wrath in the temple. He was furious. So not all, not all, uh, not all anger is wrong. There, there are occasions we ought to get angry. Scripture commends righteous indignation. We ought to be morally outraged when others' rights are taken away, when they're defrauded or affronted or insulted in some way. It ought to make us angry. something wrong with us, if it doesn't, Henry Ward Beecher said, a man who doesn't know how to get angry doesn't know how to be good. You know, if we have any sense of morality at all, certain things going on around us, a child being abused, a spouse being battered, ought to make us furious. But Scripture warns us against our indignation's tendency to turn into resentment and then into, into rage. Paul says, be angry but don't sin. It's all right to be angry, but there is a sinful ang- anger and, and explains what that is. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Anger that turns into, into bitter resentment is, is wrong. Years ago, my mother... Uh, passed on to me a poem by Charles and Mary Lamb. It goes like this. Anger in its time and place may assume a kind of grace. It must have some reason to it and not last beyond a minute. If to further links it go into malice, it doth grow. Now the irony in that poem, and I didn't realize it at the time when I was a child, is that Mary Lamb, in a fit of insane rage, murdered her own mother. She apparently knew what she was talking about. I don't know if this poem was written before or after the fact, but the point is that though we know the truth, we still can transgress uh, terribly about it against, the, uh, against the truth. So what I want to say is that indignation properly used, indignation sanctified, indignation put to its intended purpose is commendable, but there are two forms of anger that are not. In their rage, that is outbursts of anger, fury, Rage and resentment. Rage is uncontrolled, violent anger. Uh, Paul writes, get rid of rage and anger. He says that in Ephesians 4.31. And cites fits of rage as, as the product of our sinful humanity, that is our, our flesh. In Galatians, that familiar list of the uh, works of the flesh in Galatians 5. That's rage. It's outbursts of anger. Resentment is, is rage gone underground. That, I think, is the common sin of Christians who believe that uh, outbursts of anger, rightly so, are sinful and, and inappropriate. But both resentment and rage are simply manifestations of our selfishness and the desire to rid, of our, rid ourselves of people who get in our face. You see, that's why, that's why Jesus said that... Uh, Anger is tantamount to murder, and the insult, fool, is comparable to 
to uh, uh, other uh, violent acts, uh, assault and battery, because both are indicative of a desire to just get people out of our lives, get them out of our face, make them stop bothering us, stop thwarting us, frustrating us, letting us uh, do what we want, what we want to do. Anger is a, I've heard it described this way by a number of people, anger is a blanket emotion, kind of a bedspread. It covers up a lot of emotions underneath. When our sense of security or self-worth is imperiled, when we lose, lose power in a relationship, when someone diminishes us, insults us in some way, when our imperfections are revealed, when we're rejected, we get angry, we get resentful. It struck me one day that anger is basically a reaction to outraged love. C.S. Lewis said that anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. You see, what we want is unbounded love. We want infinite love. We want absolute love. We want people to always love us all the time in every possible way. And when that love is threatened, we, we get angry. We react defensively uh, to that. Now, here's what happens. Threatening situations do something to us physiologically. Whenever we're in a threatening situation, when our life and well-being is imperiled, our autonomic nervous system kicks in and it activates our adrenal gland and our adrenal gland begins to secrete certain chemicals that prepare us to fight or or to flee, to resist in a certain way. And, and, it, and it's that chemical reaction that gives us that hard-to-describe feeling of arousal that we call anger. We get flushed, our heart begins to race, we, we, um, the, 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 the volume, the, le- the, the level of our voice begins to raise. And, you know, those are, those are all, that's part of the natural defense system that God gave to us, preparation, physiological preparation to fight or, or to flee. But when we permit those feelings to push us over the edge, when we give way to blind rage, we, we inevitably demean others, diminish ourselves, and we dishonor God, we, we, do we disobey Him. So the question is, can we really control our anger? A lot of people think that they can't. They believe that's just the way they are. It's the way they're wired. Can't control their temper. The only way is to go out and punch holes in, in closet doors or pillows or in some other way let their, let their anger out. See, we tend to think of anger as an instinctive, reflexive, unconscious, biological reaction beyond our control. Can we therefore hold ourselves responsible? You bet your life we can because the Bible does. That's the problem. The Bible speaks directly to our lack of control, to our lack of self-discipline. It ministers to us in that area. We have to take it seriously. We cannot excuse outbursts of anger. Proverbs says, better a patient person, one uh, literally slow to anger, is the the way the text puts it. Better is a, a patient person than a warrior, a person who controls his or her temper in one who takes a city. 
A fool, that's Proverbs 16.32. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person keeps himself or herself under control. Now, I want to talk a little bit about anger. I've written a paper on this, and it'll be in the racks next week. Uh, and I don't have time to develop it fully. I just would ask you to look at it next week. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, talking to people that have far more sense than I do about what actually happens and how, how our anger develops into, into, into outrageous uh, rage. But as I've thought about it, as I've read, listen, come to the conclusion that there are four components to anger. The first, the first element is the anger-inducing threat. It's the crying child, you know, the jangling telephone, uh, the abusive uh, spouse, uh, the demands that are placed upon you that uh, that, that frustrate you and, and thwart you. You know, the the tardy spouse, the is always late, the thoughtless comment that, that crushes our spirits. That's the threat-inducing element. That's the first thing. The second element is our physiological, emotional reaction to it. And that we have no control over. That's part of that natural defense system that we were talking about earlier. Something out there triggers an emotional response. It begins as a physiological response. The endocrine gland squirting, I mean the adrenal gland squirting adrenaline and other chemicals into our into our bloodstream, and our body responds to that. That we have no control over, at least uh, initially. So the second element is an inner emotional reaction to the threat. Third, and this is very important, a series of thoughts that either augment, that is, push the anger on, or mitigate it, slow it down, say, soften it. So there's the anger-inducing element, there is the physiological emotional reaction to it, and then there's a cognitive element. We can actually think at some point before we lose, uh, lose our reasonableness, our rationality. And then finally there's the behavior that's either appropriate or inappropriate, sinful or, or godly. I want to read something. Uh, just a short paragraph. These components are so intertwined that we experience them as one continuous surge. See, that's why we think we have no control. It happens so fast that we think we have no opportunity to, to stop our anger. That's why we tend to think of anger as an emotion beyond our control. We lose hope for change because we lose sight of the thinking and behaving components of anger and focus on the physiological surge of emotional arousal. But the behavioral response is governed by our ways of thinking about ourselves and about the person who is making us angry. The intensity of our anger is based on these thoughts. We reach the stage of towering rage because we permit our thoughts to drive it to us. Do you understand what I'm saying? What we think before and during and after that moment of of emotional arousal is what determines our outward behavior. There is a way to control our anger. There is hope. We don't have to be angry women, angry men. You understand what I'm saying? There there is always a cognitive element in our behavior. Now, that's nothing new. That's something the Bible has been telling us all along. 
what we think is what we are. What goes through our mind is what triggers our behavior. Our predominant thought determines our immediate action, as someone has said. It really is just an echo of the Lord's, Lord's words in, in Matthew 12. What we think is what we do. See? Paul says in Romans 12, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what we think determines our actions. Now, I want you to turn with me to James 1, because in thinking about this issue in my life, I came to the conclusion that James 1 puts all of this together and provides the key. You know, I'm of the opinion that the behavioral sciences will never discover anything about us as men and women that profoundly affects our behavior that's not embedded somewhere in Scripture. I have a great deal of respect for those that are writing and thinking in this field. I, I try to read some in this area, but I, I always try to screen it through uh, my grit, which is Scripture. I uh, set aside anything that's directly contradictory to Scripture. If Scripture doesn't speak to that particular issue, I'm always agnostic. But I've discovered that in the really profound areas of life, the things that pertain to life and godliness, that Scripture speaks to those issues. This is the manual that goes with women and men. It tells us how to understand ourselves in a way that uh, we cannot otherwise be uh, understood. The problem with us is that we're always asking the wrong questions. That's why we don't think Scripture addresses some of these issues. Does Scripture address eating disorders? You bet your life it does. Does it it, uh, discuss... uh, uh, compulsive behaviors. Absolutely it does. Does it discuss alcohol abuse? Yes, absolutely. See it? But the problem is that God has insight in, into our personalities and character that we don't have. We're, we're, we're invariably asking the wrong questions, so we don't see that the answers are the right answers. Uh, for example, Jesus is talking to a group of people. Someone shouts out of the crowd, Make my brother share his inher- our inheritance with me. Remember what Jesus said to him? Beware of greed. Boy, he just leaped right over the question, right into the heart. He realized that most of our passion for justice is not based upon justice at all. It's based on greed. And he, you know, he just spoke right to the... Well, that's what the Bible does. And that's why we don't always recognize that the Bible has the answers to these uh, profound psychological questions that we struggle with. We're asking the wrong questions. Now, what, what James does is answer the right question in James 1, 19 uh, and 20. My dear brothers, he says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For, and we know this, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life uh, that God desires. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I would suggest that you take a three-by-five card, put that verse on the card, put it on your mirror, put it on your dashboard, put it on your kitchen cabinet, your computer, whatever, every day and think about it because I'm convinced that rightly understood and applied, that's the answer. That's the solution to our anger. Now, the first thing James says is that we need to acknowledge our anger. There's nothing sinful 
about the initial emotional surge of anger. For myself, I cannot think of an emotion that in and of itself is sinful. The problem is the place to which our emotions take us. Emotions in and of themselves are not sinful. As I said, the, the emotion of anger is just a part of our natural defense system. Whenever we feel frustrated or thwarted or under attack, whenever we're threatened, the immediate, almost automatic reaction is anger, and we cannot do anything about that in the beginning. James says we need to acknowledge it. That's hard for some people to do because they think of the emotional surge as sin itself. First thing we need to say to ourselves is, I'm angry. And we may need to say that to the person, the threat-inducing element, the person that's in our face and say, you know, I'm getting very angry. That's not wrong. That's the first step, to acknowledge that we're getting angry. The second step is, as James describes it, to be slow to anger. To be slow to anger. We can and must hold back our anger for a time. This is not repression, which is holding anger in, but rather a matter of slowing down the rapid escalation of of our emotion. You can retard the progress of anger. We do have that ability. Anger is not supreme. We have the the ability to to slow it down. Uh, Marty Murphy came up after the first service and told me that uh, he used to, when he was back east, he used to buy these Salida tea bags, and they have little aphorisms on them. And one of them was, the time to procrastinate is when you're angry. These are wise words. Slow your anger down. Maybe by the time-honored expedient of uh, taking some deep breaths, relaxing your muscles, counting to ten. Uh, There's a Greek uh, playwright by the name of Plutarch who uh, has one of his characters say to the the emperor, to the Caesar, Remember, Caesar, whenever you're angry, say or do nothing until you have repeated the 24 letters to yourself. He's talking about the 24 letters of the Greek alphabet. Uh, that's good advice. When, when you feel that first surge of anger to uh, count to ten, to go through uh, the English alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Furthermore, James says, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Literally. We should speak slowly or not at all. That's the time to keep your mouth shut. Because there's something about talking that escalates our anger. I've, I've found that over and over again in my own experience. If I start talking, I just get angrier and angrier and angrier. Well, James says, be quiet. Zip your lip. Don't speak. Don't say anything. Just sit there. Restraining our tongues has the effect of slowing down our thought process, processes so we can begin to think clearly, rationally, and analytically. Someone has said, speak when you're angry and you give the best speech you'll ever regret. (laughs) And then James says we should be quick to listen. Now here's where I depart from some of the uh, uh, texts that are 
based on this passage that attempt to help us with our understanding of anger because I do not believe that James is talking about listening to others or either or even listening to our self-talk. I do think at this point it's it is good to listen to what we're saying to ourselves. What am I you know what what happens to us is as our anger begins to escalate we begin to talk to ourselves. We begin to tell ourselves certain certain things. We'll talk about this in a moment. Basically, we're lying to ourselves. And that begins to escalate and exacerbate uh, our anger. So it's true. We need to listen to ourselves. But that's not what ta- Paul is talk- uh, uh, James is talking about here. He's talking about listening to the Word, listening to what God has to say. It's very clear from the context. Notice the verse that precedes it. He chose us. God chose us to give us birth through the Word of Truth. You get that? He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Listen to what? Listen to the word of truth. Listen to what God is saying to you at that moment. Uh, That's an idea that he elaborates in verse 22, the verse that follows. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So what James is saying is that we must slow down our thinking. See, he's slow to speak, slow to be angry, and mentally challenge our thoughts, correct the lies that inform our thinking. See, all of us have uh, what someone has called erroneous zones. Uh, we, we tell ourselves lies all the time. The world tells us lies. Media is always, they, they always deceive us. Um, we believe against all evidence to the contrary that everything ought to go our way. Our children should always behave. Our opinions should always be considered. Our spouses and friends should always be reasonable, cheerful, helpful, and kind. Others should always listen to us, understand us, do our bidding. In short, every, everybody ought to love us like you wouldn't believe. Okay. Lies. A pack of lies. Oh, we all have needs for love and affirmation and appreciation. God put those needs into us, you see. But those will never be met till we get to heaven. That's where those needs are going to be met. They'll never be met here. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things, wanting to be listened to, wanting to be heard, wanting to be loved, wanting to be cared for, wanting to be cherished. Nothing wrong with that. But when those become demands, then they're what Scripture calls lustful, passions, inordinate passions. God put those needs in our hearts, but we can't make them demands, not in this world. And if we really think that our children are always going to behave, that our mates are always going to listen to what we say, that people are always going to appreciate us out there, that there won't be any five o'clock traffic jams uh, around the mall, you know, man, you know, we we really think that we got to correct those erroneous zones. So what we have to do is listen to what we're thinking and correct those thoughts, those thoughts of self-pity, discouragement, jealousy, and all those other invalid thoughts and replace them with truth. What's true? You see, there's that moment when our anger starts to escalate. We need to slow our thinking down. C.S. Lewis says that anger is the anesthesia of the mind. 
what happens is that we get angry. When we get angry, we, we become irrational. We're not thinking anymore. But there is a moment when we can think rationally. And what we need to ask ourselves is this. What's going on? What am I thinking? What is it that's exacerbating and enhancing uh, this, uh, this anger? And replace those thoughts with truth. There are several things that I, I try to remember. One is that if I'm being unloved in that particular situation, just to remember, stop and think, well, what's happening to me? Well, I'm being deprived of love, and I, and I can't demand it. I, I can't demand that everybody understand me, that they hear what I'm saying. Not the way it is in this, in this world. But I am a profoundly loved child of God. He loves me just like I am. Even if that person does not, he does. And when I start thinking that every, everything ought to go my way, I have to realize that I live in a, in a broken world with broken people who will frequently break my heart. As Bob Dylan says, everything is broken in this world. And thirdly, I'm not the center of the universe. God is. And he has the right to do as he pleases. Now, I'm going to have to leave this with you because our time is, is up. I would encourage you to go on and read chapter 4 of Janet James because he elaborates on this idea. and It's in the paper if you want to look at it next week. Basically, what James says in chapter 4 is they're all a bunch of hedonists. You know, we're just rampant about getting our own way and feathering our own nest and seeking our own pleasure. And we have to let God give us what we desire in his own time and his own, own way. Those are things that we ought to be thinking about, and it's it's the truth that de-escalates our anger and enables us to control it. We have to walk out of the room for a while. Take, take a walk around the block and just talk to the Lord and tell Him of your frustration and ask Him to remind you of, of the truth and replace the false thinking in our minds with, uh, with the truth. Let me say this. Anger control is a process. It's not something that happens overnight takes time. As we begin to fill our minds with truth, we are, we are far less threatened. A secure person is less likely to have an adrenaline surge when her client climbs her frame over her performance. The person who realizes that God is sovereign and controls all the details of life is less, lack, less likely to get exasperated by uh, 5 o'clock traffic. Men or women who know they're safe in God's hands can be patient, calm, long-suffering in the face of terror and intimidation. As we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we become more secure in His love, then we're less threatened, less likely to react, less likely to have that adrenaline surge, but it takes time. See, it takes time. In the meantime, as C.S. Lewis says, we're going to be very muddy children. We're going to fall down a lot. We're going to fail. But that's all right. No failure is final. He's the God of an infinite number of chances. We just we have to apologize a lot, back off, and tell the other person that we're deeply sorry for what we've done and for the harm that we've brought, and then go on. As Lewis says, the only fatal thing is to give up. Don't lose hope. Stay with it. I'm going to leave you with a story that I came across uh, last week about... Leonardo da Vinci is working on his famous painting of the Last Supper, painting on the face of Jesus. The technique of that day, which was painting uh, fresco, you know, 
causes a lot of eye irritation, hand irritation, and so forth. And he was having a difficult time of it. Long toward the end of the day, he's irritated. Workman did something that made him mad. Lashed out bitter words at this workman. Man was just crushed. Leonardo went back to painting the face of Jesus. And he realized that he could not worship until he set things right with his with his brother and went went to be reconciled, asked forgiveness from his brother, and he could go back and finish the work that God had given him to do. So let's look into our Lord's kindly face and you you realize that no fa- no failure is final. It's always forgiveness. You need to go and, and make our apologies. Tell people we're genuinely sorry, repent of our sin and start again. No failure is final. The only fatal thing is to give up.